0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. I am back in the studio this week for the first time in a while. I'm joined by recurring guest Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. We are going to delve into some sweet, sweet off-season content. For the third year, I ranked the newly hired FBS coaches by most likely to succeed in their new jobs. Paul took a different spin on the new coaches this week, ranking the 10 best position to do well in year one. We'll compare and contrast our lists. And have a little fun debating where we think each other went wrong. And we may even squeeze in a little Avengers talk at the end. This is kind of a, a, an extra long edition of the podcast. So hope you will like the conversation. Hope you stick with it through the end. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One and Apple Podcast, And just about anywhere you get your podcast. please subscribe. And if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. My guest this week, well, he's almost my co-host now, because Paul Meyerberg from USA Today has been coming on the show a lot. First of all, I really like Paul. He's a friend of mine. So it's always fun to have him on. But secondly, like I want to have Paul on at certain times, on certain topics, because he's good at sort of finding... He's good at the off-season content thing. And plus, Paul and I were both writing about something similar this week when we were feeding the off-season content machine. So, my first of all, how are you doing, Paul?
1: Good. I mean, I don't get
0: paid for this though.
1: That's just like
0: No, but neither do I. So oh, okay. I mean, t- technically, I don't I don't really Shoot. get anything more than I already do for my job. This it provides no more no more compensation ever since National I've been doing point. this. Yeah. Just more work and popularity. I like to think I like to think right. this is spreading the word about me and, and, and how well I do my job. <laughs> and, and that's questionable. But nonetheless, we always appreciate Paul coming on. So this week, I was going to write about the new coaches in FBS, and Paul was also writing about the new coaches in FBS. But I was taking a look at, and I've done this the last couple of years, instead of grading the hires, because I don't really – that's kind of a weird thing to do. I feel like you're like – I feel like you're personally criticizing coaches, right? If you give such and such school an F for a hire, what you're saying is that guy can't coach.
1: Essentially, right. And also – when, when, like you did on yours, unlike mine, when you go one through twenty-seven,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're essentially saying number twenty-seven, you're you're garbage, you're a trash coach, you're a trash coach. Right. When I, I go one through ten, you can then say one of you guys, eleven to twenty-seven, one of you seventeen gentlemen, you're trash. But I'm not going to call you out as being trash. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you, for example, think Jim McElwain is a trash football coach mm-hmm. because you have him twenty-seven. That's the only thing that I could possibly take away from your very long detailed list of. Future success.
0: Projection. Okay. Which, of course, brings me to my explanation, which is, no, that's exactly the reason why I do it this way. So my most likely to succeed list is not necessarily just factoring in the coach and who whether that guy can coach or not. It's sort of saying, okay, what is the coach like? What is the school like? What is the program's expectations? What is the likelihood that this coach can fit into this school and reach those expectations? Which doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad coach, but it also measures like you could have a good tenure at a school. But, you know, listen, I I think there are people who might look at – oh, I I can't even think of a a guy now. But, like, you could have some success and win at a school, but it might not be enough – so that tenure might not be a success in the long run, so that's right. what I'm so It's a little bit of more i'd like to think of it as a little more nuanced, but ultimately, you know what you could also take it as like I think Jim McElwain can't coach so 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 <laughs> Dave
1: so, Doran, by the way, would be a good example of a guy who's like winning at a really nice clip mm-hmm. like relative historically speaking at n c state, but I could see like in the i understand he's he's got an extension and he's sitting pretty in terms of security, but I could envision a scenario where like three more years of eight and five, seven and six and NC States. It's like, Oh, like we really appreciate all that you've done. You've done a really nice job. You have like the sixth or fifth best winning percentage in the program history, but we think that we can find a guy who can go 10 and two. That's the example you're talking about. We're also, and I did point this out when I did just looking at 2019 specifically, that success is relative, like eight wins at Wake Forest is different than eight wins of Forest State, obviously.
0: Right, right. That's a huge thing, especially when you go through my list and you realize, wow, like, why is that guy so low? Well, because he has a higher bar to clear. Again, and you, as you, as you just mentioned, just to clarify, you said, okay, here are the top 10 coaches who are most likely to have success this year. So they may end up, crashing and burning later on but for this year these guys are set to have nice years they don't have a huge amount of rebuilding to do they are moving into situations where whatever the bar is for them they should be able to clear that bar you know it's it's funny you brought doran but a good a good example might be larry fedora right was larry fedora's tenure at north carolina a success now, I'm I'm not saying we need to come up with a definitive answer here, but you could say like he won big a little. He had some big winning seasons. The program was in uh, a little bit of turmoil when he got there. He pulled it out of turmoil, but it certainly ended poorly. So that's what I kind of mean by success. Successes can be kind of a, a nuanced word, and sometimes it's hard to pinpoint what success is. But even though Larry Fedora got fired, you could say that his tenure was a success at North Carolina.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think we're obviously colored by what we see late, you know, what a guy does in his last year, last two years kind of dictates how we look at the whole picture. Um, but I agree with you. I think if you looked at the entirety of it, and we also add that Fedora had a number two overall quarterback mm-hmm. or two or three, whatever Trubisky went, I don't remember. Um, the offense was electric. I think what people probably remember about Fedora is not only the collapse, but also the individual season collapses where they had chances to win a coastal division that was up for grabs almost every year that he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I think he did win one because I remember going to that Clemson NC yes. title game, but um, yeah, that's a really good example. I think we're going to find out, we're going to talk about Mac Brown, what UNC believes success is by its own definition. I think we'll probably discuss that, but I think if anyone called Fedora a, poor tenure or unsuccessful tenure, they'd be, that would be even more incorrect. I do not think it was unsuccessful, though how you define success, obviously, is in the eye of the beholder.
0: I'll delve into my list and we can bring it back to your list a little bit, maybe compare and contrast a little bit, though I think that we may have both had the same number one now that I come to think about it. Did you also have Dana Holgerson as number one? No, you had Eli Drinkwitz at Appalachian State number one. I did. have Eli one. number one.
1: So tell me why you had Holgerson number one in your overarching sense, and then I'll explain why I had Holgerson actually number eight in terms of 2019.
0: Okay, so I think Holgerson, he's proven he can be a pretty good coach, right? West Virginia is not an easy job in the Big 12. He was part of the transition to the Big 12. The program successfully managed that. And it didn't take a very long time before they were competitive in the Big Twelve. I understand they didn't contend for championships every year in the Big Twelve, but nonetheless, they had a winning record under Holgerson in a conference that is a Texas-based conference, and he's the Eastern outlier. They had exciting teams, good quarterbacks, and now he's moving into a situation where Houston has been a program with a history of success. Like even you know, Major Applewhite got fired after two years but had winning records both of those years. And last year, halfway through the season, Houston looked like it might have been the best group of five team in the country before players started getting hurt. So the program itself is very strong. And I think the coach is good and the coach is a good fit to the area. So I think this should work out fabulously well for Houston. Now, I'm not saying Houston's going to contend for playoff spots but Houston should be a a a serious contender for the AAC West and championship I think for years to come under Holgerson as far as long as he's there
1: well how do you equate that or align that thought with the idea that Houston it's 26 months ago said hey we fire coaches go eight and four you -hmm. know and then you know they actually did do that with Applewhite what how do you equate that with Holgerson if he goes 8-4 and four, three years in a row, are they going to fire him? I mean, what are the standards, essentially, at Houston where you think that he can match them when 8-4 and four isn't good enough?
0: Maybe the standards at Houston are a little out of whack. But <laughs> I also think that he's an 8-4 and four floor guy, I think, at Houston. Like, I don't think they are so, – also, I, I also think that he brings a certain cachet – that he, he will allow him to survive an eight and four, where I think Major Applewhite walked in there with a lot of skepticism. He was the coach that was sort of hired a little bit on the cheap because he was he was a, agreed to a contract that was very school friendly. Whereas I I think you know Holgerson again brings a certain amount of gravity to him. I I get what you're saying. The bar certainly has been sort of raised at Houston, but I think I think eight and four is very reasonable for a guy like Holgerson at Houston to to hit to hit and exceed consistently.
1: Yeah. Well, when I look at 2019, um, I don't really see a great football team, Mm -hmm. you know, at Houston. I think that uh, essentially, actually I see a Holgerson team, which is a team that's going to score a lot of points, but also give up a ton, a ton, a ton of points, you know? So I wonder about, look, it's not like Kendall Bryles was like, you know, doing I formation option offense. They were pretty high, potent, high test, high scoring in 2018. And you look at 2019, they have no secondary, um, and most importantly, they have no Ed Oliver. And when they lost Oliver last season, their defense was one of the worst in the country. So just looking at projections, they're projected to be one among the worst defense in the country again, unless they get all these transfers in the secondary to step up and play corner and safety. So to me, I mean, 8-4, and four, you could say the floor. If they went 8-4 and four this year, I think that would be great. I don't even know if they will go 8-4 and four in 2019. So I wonder for Holgerson, if they go 7-5 and five and finish tied for fourth in the West what's what's the story going to be? What's the storyline and, and the conversation going to be around Holberson heading forward? Because, you know, I don't think 2019, like you said, I think the standards at Houston are out of whack, but when it comes to Holberson, obviously there's going to be a lot more leeway than there was with Major Applewhite. I don't think, like, if they go 7-5, and five, it's the end of the world. But I don't know if it's going to be as gangbusters from the start as... A lot of people think I think it's going to be a process
0: that that could be fair. But I also would suggest that he probably is, is 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 capable of getting the thing bouncing back from a seven and five, eight and four very quickly. And all of a sudden, a year or two from now, we are looking at Houston being the clearly best team in what is you know, a very a very solid division with Memphis. But you never know what's going to go on with Mike Norville. Now, that's the other thing, too. I look at it compared to the competition. Memphis certainly has it going on pretty well. SMU. Has not quite clicked, even though it gotten it got better under Chad Morris, and maybe Sonny Dykes can possibly push it forward. But there still seems to be something that's sort of capping SMU over there. Tulsa has it again; hasn't really clicked quite as I thought maybe it might under Philip Montgomery. It seems like Navy is recalibrating to its new world of being in a conference. So, to me, it, it, as much as the division is certainly competitive, I think. Holgerson, plus all the, the resources that Houston has as far as recruiting territory, facilities, money being pumped in, that's just a nice blend compared to the rest of the competition there. So where you're right, there might be a little bit of rebuilding going on at Houston this year, or at least recalibrating. I think for the long term, Holgerson is, and Houston are set, especially compared to the group this year. I think that's also something that should be noted very few coaches stepped into truly great situations this year there's a no, lot of no, power exactly. 5 programs with new coaches where that coach is sort of walking into a lot of uncertainty so we can sort of move on from there and well the number 2 on my list wasn't even was even a power 5 coach in fact not even a coach in a conference and i think you were a little not quite as bullish or bearish i should say no bullish not quite as is it bullish, bullish? Yeah, bullish. Not quite as bullish on U Freeze as I was, but I had U Freeze at number two going into his first season at Liberty. And again, a lot of this has to do with managing expectations. If Liberty goes to bowl games over the next couple of years and U Freeze then bounces to another job, that's a success.
1: You think so? So if he does two years at 15 and seven or whatever, that's not the right math, 15 and nine Mm
0: -hmm.
1: with a bowl game in year two and then leaves to become the head coach at... Arkansas state again. You're good with that. Liberty would be ecstatic about that. They'd be happy.
0: Yes, Liberty would be ecstatic about that. They would have they would have sort of broken through onto the national stage to a certain degree. I don't know what that means long term, but I do think Liberty would be ecstatic with that. The other thing to consider with Liberty and you know, I was only doing a blibbit on each coast so I didn't want to necessarily make this thing 5000 words. Liberty has a very manageable schedule. Unlike UMass, which is also an independent, uh, Liberty doesn't have to do a lot of really over-their-head buy games. They're not playing two or three SEC schools where they're just getting a big check because they have so much money at that university they don't have to. So if you look at the Liberty schedule over the next couple of years, it's not crazy to sort of say, oh, yeah, that's you could do seven wins there and maybe you only need to pull one upset.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, I looked at it this year. I was looking at him for 2019. I think he'll get the six wins, but... They do have a four-game stretch on the road. And don't laugh. It starts with Rutgers. Nonetheless, Rutgers is a Power 5 team. They have more talent than Liberty. UMass, who you, beat Liberty maybe, last year. Maybe, like maybe, they have more.
0: maybe they have more talent than Rutgers.
1: I know. Well, I Rutgers think Rutgers has do. more I mean, talent than I, Liberty. That's the thing. I think. I don't know. And then at BYU, at UVA. And then they have a home-and-home home with New Mexico State again. It's probably a six-win team. But it's not a team that's going to move the needle. Is it going to be a team where Hugh Freeze is going to be able to you know, take this and translate it into a power five job? Yeah, because I think people look at wins and losses. But I think two is high just because of the idea that if it is, if it is successful, it's hit and quit. It's in and out. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like there are guys lower on your list who in the, in the overarching picture will have a more successful tenure because maybe it's six years or seven years, as hard as that is to imagine in college football. Maybe it's six years, and to me, a six-year tenure is more successful than a two-year tenure unless you know, you're know you Larry Coker's first two years.
0: Okay, I'm going to throw all these three guys together because I had a hard time coming up with exactly the right order. They have all have uh, previous coaching experience outside the Power Five, moving into Power Five jobs with pretty challenging rebuilding situations, though, in different ways. So I had Jeff Collins at number three at Georgia Tech, uh, West Virginia is Neil Brown at number four and Scott Satterfield at Louisville at number five. I think you could conceivably mix those those up and, and reshuffle the order there. But I'm wondering what your view of those like sort of that threesome and in that order. If I was just say, give me the order of that threesome, which ones do you think will have the best uh, long term success? What order would you give him?
1: I would probably do Brown first, um, because I think the opportunity at West Virginia is far greater than the opportunity at Georgia Tech and Louisville. I think their opportunity to be great is higher at West Virginia than the other two places. But at the same time, I I know what you're saying with Collins. I don't have either one of these three guys on the list because all three will be average or worse in 2019. Certainly Collins because he's got to redo the whole offense. But like you said in your piece, if you look at the overall picture for Georgia Tech, it's, it's essentially hinged on recruiting. And if there's Collins, anything that Collins can do you know, recruit the hell out of a state and certainly recruit the hell out of Georgia where there's enough talent to go around. I also. Um, So if that's like if you believe in that, then, then yeah, I think talents could be third.
0: I also do wonder if we are underestimating where Georgia Tech sort of should be in the pecking order of the ACC Coastal. You know, Miami has is Miami, right? So it has the history of winning, though we never, and we'll get to Manny Diaz very shortly. It's hard to sometimes sort of place what Miami is now compared to what Miami was and if those are reasonable expectations. But... With all those players in Georgia now. And you say that, well, there's always been a lot of players in Georgia. But I, I think it's even gotten deeper. It's gotten better managed now. There are more well resourced high schools and better coaches coming in there. So they're producing not just a, a quantity of players, but a quality of players that is pretty impressive, which I think is the reason why they hired Jeff Collins sort of to get back in the game to say, listen, there are all these players around here. We don't have to get the best ones, we just have to get some of them. And we could be better relative to our a c c competition. Georgia Tech has a strange situation now where it has Clemson and Georgia on its schedule every year. That means Georgia Tech will be playing two of the top five teams in the country for the next four or five years reasonably speaking, right Do you think that's that's a reasonable mm-hmm. statement? No, for sure for okay. sure That said, they don't have to be as good as Georgia. They don't have to be as good as Georgia uh, as Clemson. They have to be as good as Virginia Tech and Duke and Pitt. And I think that's a pretty reasonable place to be. So that's why I'm, I'm a little, again, we'll use the stock market term. That's why I'm a little more bullish on Jeff Collins.
1: Yeah, and, and it's possible that like the national perception of Georgia Tech and their viability has been colored a bit by the fact that, by and large, more people have not viewed it as a gimmick program under Paul Johnson. And as a gimmick offense, though it's not. It's been in vogue for 100 years. Um, so I think that, I think that had an impact on how people view Georgia tech's capabilities or potential. I think Collins will change that. I hesitate to say that he's going to have them be the best team in the coastal, obviously, because who knows at this point, but just in terms of a foundational idea, like programs haven't built on less than, Hey, I'm going to recruit the hell out of Georgia. You know, I want to recruit the hell out of Georgia. We're going to play hard and and you're going to like what you see. I mean, it's a fine idea. It's actually a really good idea on paper. Um, If he has the energy to pull it off, then, yeah, I agree. I think Georgia Tech potentially could be a team that's in that coastal mix every single year. And that's not damning praise. I think, you know, I'm not saying they're going to be four and four and two games out of the division every year. I think they're a team that conceivably could be right there as one of those two or three teams, along with Tech and Miami, that every year you say, "Okay, so here are your top three in the coastal. Let's just, you know mix and match where you think they'll finish but unlike when you look at 2019 I think this Jeff Collins idea is like a four or five year idea I mean honestly it's going to take years in my mind for Jeff Collins to get not just flip the offense but flip the roster and flip the talent level I think that's a real process if you believe in it and you have number three that's cool but I think also to be pragmatic about it if you think they're going to do it before 2022 I think that might be a little premature.
0: That's a fair point. Now Scott Satterfield also just to mention him, I I think he was a really nice plan B for a Louisville. I think he comes with from a system that works at Appala- Appalachian State. I think Louisville is in a position to get better. They just won't get better very fast. I just think that right now they were so torn down to the studs. I worry a little bit about all the building he has to do. But I have no concern over Satterfield as a coach or Neil Brown. I very li- I shouldn't say no because you never really know until these guys get into these bigger jobs. But I have very little concern as uh, for Satterfield as a coach or Neil Brown as a coach. Let me go to Manny Diaz at number six because that was another one where I was like, eh, maybe could be a little higher. Essentially, Manny Diaz at number six is – is, and I even was tempted to have him lower than this. I think initially I had him a couple of spots lower. The feeling of Manny Diaz is can anybody really be successful at Miami anymore? Uh, are we yeah. getting to the point where, where nothing will be successful at Miami because if you don't win a national championship, you're not a success? So if that's the bar – is it possible to be successful?
1: Totally. And I think that the same will, will be said of Ryan Day when we get to him on your list. If you're at Miami and you're not every single year as good or better than, is a bad example of Florida State's garbage, but if you're not as good or better than the idea of an elite Florida State team or an elite Florida team or an elite Alabama team, I think you're not a success. So I don't know if I'd have Manny Diaz 6. I might have Diaz in the low teens, mid-teens because of the idea that what's good enough? I'm not saying he can't do it. And one thing in his corner, obviously, is that he's rallied the troops and everyone is, you know, in lockstep with Diaz because he's commanded the respect of the roster and the community. So I think he has that going for him and maybe that gets him a little more leeway. But what does he have to do to be considered a success? You know, I, I don't know if it's a national championship, but if he's not in the college football playoff, if he's not winning the ACC against a Clemson dynasty, which is so far ahead of Miami right now, it's ridiculous. But is that what he has to do? Because I'm not sure if he can do that, or if anyone could do that outside of, you know, the three, four, five elite head coaches in the country.
0: Okay, so I don't again I don't want to go too slow here. So I'm gonna i I'm gonna skip a little fast here. Will Healy I have a number seven, which is maybe a little bit uh ambitious for a thirty-four year old coming from Austin P, but he's got good pedigree and Charlotte is a program that's sort of has a chance to get better because because the Conference USA is such a mess right now. I think there's a lot of upward mobility in Conference USA. But I, I, I will admit maybe being a little too optimistic on Will Healy. Chris Kleeman at number eight for Kansas State. I just think that's a great fit. I think North Dakota State has been better than Kansas State in recent years. So if he can just do that's,
1: it he's not number eight. He cannot be number eight. But he's following up Bill Snyder. He has to be like number twenty two. No there's she... nothing that Chris Kleeman can do. That would call him a success when you follow the greatest head coach in program history, the only noteworthy head coach in program history, a Hall of Famer. If
0: if you had followed the first version, the first tenure of Bill Snyder, I understand that. But the second tenure of Bill Snyder has been far less successful and brought expectations down at Kansas State to far more manageable places. Right. I mean, it's like people do not expect Kansas State to contend for national championships. They barely expect Kansas State to contend for Big 12 championships. So if Cleman can go in there and just do a little better than what second tenure Snyder has has done that makes him a success in my mind i think I'm, I'm
1: looking at this right now i'm pretty sure his winning percentage in his second tenure was the same as his first
0: yeah but that's you can't I,
1: obviously impacted by his first couple years right right that's obviously. just not but, fair for more it more aside right. um yeah i just don't know I, I i mean you'd rather replace sean snyder let's put it that way than Bill. Snyder. <laughs>
0: that's clearly clearly yeah all right. So, uh, another guy I think you had a, a higher hopes for than I, and I think you actually, because I ran this list by you a little behind the, uh, Inside Baseball, and I think I had had Mac Brown a little farther down, and then I sort of bumped him up after running some ideas by you. So, I have Mac Brown at number nine. You have him actually pretty high up on your this year list, don't you?
1: Yeah. I, I think he's a guy who is going to get to a bowl game this year because I don't think UNC has been as bad as the record suggested the last two years. I think they had terrible injuries. A mismanaged a QB situation. Obviously leadership was lacking for the head coach down. So I don't think UNC has been as is as much of a rebuild or a tear down reconstruction as the last two years would probably suggest. Um, I think Mac Brown's gonna do great at UNC. For some reason, something has happened to how we look at Mac Brown as people. You're right.
0: Uh, You see, I know where you're going here, and you're right. And in in retrospect, I kind of feel the same way, too. Like, this is a Hall of Fame coach who never had bad seasons.
1: Right. He's had one losing season, and it was that famous five and seven year after losing the title game to Alabama, since 1990. So, like, for the entirety of Will Healy's lifetime, he's had, like, two or three (laughs) losing seasons, Mac Brown. Um, He knows what he's doing. I think he's re-energized. I think UNC loves to have him there. I don't think UNC is imagining that he's going to turn them into mid-2000s Texas. They don't have that kind of, I mean, yeah, they, they might, but they shouldn't. I don't think most people do. I just think Matt Brown's going to do a really nice job. And I think also he's like working on a five-year kind of window. I don't think he's going to be coaching deep into his 70s. I just think he's he's the right fit at the right time. They're going to do really well. I really do think that. I think nine is a good spot for him because of the idea that he has been out of the game for a while. So I'd want to see him rediscover or prove what he's learned in those six years that he sat on the sidelines, but I think he's going to do great. I really do. I think um, nine's a good spot for him. I thought before, like you said, you had him a little bit too
0: lucky. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess again, I think I'm a little tarnished by the end of Mac, and also I tend to be a little bit skeptical of the guys coming back and the older coaches in general. I'll get to that a little later down on the list, but I will say this: the great point that you made he's not going to be in here for 10 years, right? He might be looking mm-hmm. at this as I'm going to kill it for five years and get the hell out before I have the downward turn like a lot of coaches have like he had at Texas. So he he's going to skip town, because, not skip town in a bad way, but he's going to get out of there and go off into retirement after putting this program in a good place. That probably is the plan there. So he's not going to necessarily have the – Descent that he had at Texas. I so, will
1: say, just in terms of recruiting, mm-hmm. we know for sure that Mac Brown's going to bring in top 15 classes. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I think all his classes will be top 20 nationally. And I think you can probably say the same about Ryan Day, who I'll we'll mention in a second, yeah. because it's Ohio State and maybe, obviously, Diaz, because it's Miami, and perhaps Collins at Georgia Tech. But Mac's going to bring in the talent. No doubt about it, that he's going to have a roster that's good enough to win the ACC Coastal beginning in two years.
0: Okay, let's talk about Ryan Day, and then will go a quick break, because clearly, listen, it, it, I mean... Ohio State is a job that does not have unsuccessful coaches. Do you have a dog by the, by chance in your background there? There's not, but
1: as you know, we live in roughly the same neighborhood. There's construction occurring on both sides of my building. So I'm getting stereo surround sound okay. of guys hammering away. Awesome. I was hoping that you wouldn't hear it, but it, unfortunately, it, it's, it's totally It's, fi- it's totally in the fine.
0: It's totally fine. And we're absolutely going to leave it in. But yes. It is
1: dogs. There are dogs who are doing the construction, but it's the construction that is
0: making the noise. <laughs> awesome. So, so here's the deal with Ryan Day nobody doesn't have success on some level at Ohio State. It is a bulletproof program, right? Insofar as the last five coaches at Ohio State not including Luke Fickle for one year, were four Hall of Famers and Urban Meyer. So when I talked to Ryan Day when I was in Arizona, I congratulated him on his future induction into the College Football Hall of Fame. Now, that said, if you are not a Hall of Famer, so if Ryan Day, let's say, loses to Michigan, let's say, has an 8-4 and season, In the next couple of years, like that's completely unacceptable at Ohio State. So that's why Ryan Day is 10 instead of, let's say, five or six or seven. And quite frankly, I'm even maybe a little overly optimistic at 10. Like I might I might be able to convince myself that I was a little too aggressive at 10 and he should have been somewhere in the teens just simply because he is a first time head coach. And the expectations at Ohio State are so ludicrously high.
1: Yeah, I mean, another guy that you could have pitched into the 20s, and I don't think you could have made the argument very strongly. Because if he doesn't win a national championship, his tenure won't be a success. I mean, John Cooper's tenure at Ohio State, understanding he's a Hall of Fame coach, is not viewed, just like Earl Bruce's tenure, is not viewed wonderfully. Because he didn't win a national championship, and he lost to Michigan. You know, And the standard, not not to mention the fact that Urban Meyer has changed things at Ohio State, like dramatically. He's changed things to the point for Ohio State where if you're not winning twelve games, like it's a disappointment. So Ryan Day may win twelve games a season, but he probably won't because he's not Urban Meyer. So I just feel like it's it's just a tough spot for Ryan Day. In like the overall sense, he's set for life. Like you said, he's on the path to go to the Hall of Fame because even if he's not successful, he's gonna win seventy to seventy-five to eighty percent of his games at Ohio State because it's Ohio State. I just don't know if at any point you can say about any first-time coach anywhere, oh, this dude's going to win a national championship. I mean, that's ridiculous. Aren't there? F- How many are there now active? Four? Miles, Jimbo, Saban, Dabo? Are those yep. the four active head coaches of the title? It.
0: That's it. Right. So oh, and Mac. To to and list. Mac. I mean, come on. And Mac. Oh, Mac. right. And Mac.
1: Mac. Right. So there's five now because Mac's back. Mm. So there's five guys. You know, I just feel like it's a little premature to say Ryan Day is going to win a title. But for him to be a success at Ohio State, he has to win a title.
0: Gotcha. All right. We're going to take a quick break here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm with Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. Be back in just a minute. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. We are going over our respective lists, ranking this year's new head coaches. Paul did a top 10 on the guys who have the most best chance of being successful this year. And his number one on that is Eli Drinkwitz, from who takes over at Appalachian State, which is a pretty stock program. You got Rod Carey of Temple at number two, Les Miles at number three, Ryan Day at number four. Uh, Mac Brown, North Carolina at number five, Manny Diaz, Miami at number six. And again, yours is just looking at this year, at how, how well they can step into this year and meet or exceed expectations. I'm sort of looking at a similar meet or exceed expectations baseline, but more long term. And at the top of mine was Dana Holgerson. And we've sort of run through from there. Again, I don't want to bog down too much. so I'm going to go a little quick here. So I have Eli Drinkwitz of Appalachian State at 11 and Chip Lindsey at number 12 for Troy on my likely to succeed list. Then Mike Houston of East Carolina at number 13. Those three are all sort of similar in that they are taking a step up in in class so to speak or at least mm-hmm. moving for for Drinkwitz moving into the head coach role from an offensive coordinator role at a Sunbelt School, Lindsey doing the same, going from offensive coordinator at Auburn to Troy. I think both of those are good fits. Houston moving up in class, was an FCS championship coach at James Madison, moving into East Carolina. You obviously are pretty high on drinkwits. If I gave you those three and said, who are you most high on long term, what would you say? I I
1: would probably do... Well, here's the thing. Of the three coaches, I probably put Houston first because of his success and his experience. Right. And obviously ECU and him is a really great marriage. It's a, it's a wonderful partnership. But in terms of the fit and the period which they're taking over and what they bring to the table, I, I just really like Drinkwitz at App State because he's cut from the Satterfield mold. He's offensively kind of ingenious. I think he's the right age. He has the right experience. I think he's had opportunities in the past to take different jobs that he has not, not because he's wanted to build – to this sort of opportunity. So I really like that situation and that setup. So Lindsay, for me, is third on, the, on that list. He's a fine football coach. He's obviously very talented and very smart. I just don't think he has the resume to really match up with either one of those two guys.
0: At 14, I have Matt Wells from Texas Tech, which just seemed a perfect place right in the middle there. for Not yes. just for Matt Wells, but for Texas Tech. Like, right dead square average seems to be the place or the sweet spot for Matt Wells and Texas Tech, that marriage on this, like, most likely to, to succeed list. I doubt he will flame out. I doubt it will provide massive fireworks, and they'll be contending for a Big 12 titles to Texas Tech. But I think that, generally speaking, it should be okay. You, Do you, you think
1: that okay. when Matt Wells is coaching at Tech, that if Kingsbury has success with the Cardinals, it'll be bad for him?
0: Ooh, that's an interesting question. Probably, because I don't. Again, I don't see this Tech Matt Wells thing all of a sudden producing a completely new level of success at Texas Tech. I don't. I don't think this. This is what takes Texas Tech to the next level. I don't think he's recreating the Mike Leach era. Right Where they are you know winning nine ten games every year, so if Kingsbury does do well on such a big stage, I could see especially you know i I still imagine that there are some Texas tech fans who sort of are not necessarily upset that Kingsbury is gone, but upset that it didn't work out. You know what I'm totally. saying, like exactly. oh like boy, like we saw potential there, and he's our guy and boy, you know, I really wish that would have happened. So, yeah, I I do think if if something, if Kingsbury in the NFL works and Wells is just a little better than Kingsbury, I I definitely can see some Tech fans going, boy, we should have just held out a little longer.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because they love Kingsbury, and even those that said it's time for a change still love Kingsbury. So it is a really interesting dynamic. I don't envy Matt Wells. He's a really good football coach with a great reputation among his peers. I don't envy him for for I know know he's not replacing Urban Meyer, but I don't really envy him for for the situation he's stepping into.
0: Okay, Rod Carey from went from North Carolina. Oh, excuse me, North Carolina, Northern Illinois to Temple. It seemed like a very safe pick. It was an odd pick because it was an odd situation because Manny Diaz left. And I think the administration there felt like they needed a ready to go head coach who actually had a staff in place. So unlike in past hires, they didn't really shoot for the long-term potential. That's the reason why I'm a little tepid on his ability to have long-term success at Temple, though I think the fit works okay. Jake Spavital. Is a former offensive coordinator, a young guy going from working under Holgerson to now Texas State. If nothing else, I think they should be more interesting, which Texas State has not been interesting at all in its short tenure in FBS. So now at least the Texas State has a chance to be interesting and score a bunch of points and be fun. Tom Arth is an interesting hire at Akron only because of his background. He has ties to John Carroll, which is a division three power. So it sort of harkens back to maybe this is a Lance Leipold to Buffalo situation, though Tom Arth is 37 years old and doesn't have the track record that Leipold had when he was at Wisconsin Whitewater. I have him at 17.
1: Let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. You pull 100th, people who classify themselves as college football fans from across our country. Mm-hmm. How many can name the Akron coach? How many could name Tom? Arth? Do you think uh, do you think five good?
0: Boy, I, I would set the over under at five.
1: Right. And this is not meant to be disrespectful to Tom. Arth. He has earned this opportunity. He has worked his butt off. To yeah. Get and off I've
0: him. heard great things about yeah, him from absolutely. people inside the industry. Totally yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think he's a nice, he's a nice fit. I think they needed to go outside of the traditional, Mac hiring bubble. And I think they did a nice job in hiring him. They did their homework. But how many people know?
0: No. Um, I think five. No. Over under five. Yeah. Good. Over under five. Maybe even four and a half. Over under four yeah. and a yeah. half. Four and a half. You have to do Yeah. A half. yeah. Uh, 18 on this list is uh, Jamie Chadwell, who's taking over Joe, Joe Moglia at Coastal Carolina. Uh, I had played with him as much lower. He had a little bit of a rough year a couple of years ago when he stepped into a, uh, an odd situation where Moglia had to step aside for a year because of health reasons, and that did not go well. And not only did it not go well on the field, there, there was reports that like the players didn't necessarily love him. But he also has a pretty good background of winning and success in the FCS level. So I'm giving him the tip of the hat there and thinking that that could work out pretty well, again, especially at a program with very low expectations. So now I have three guys here who were Power 5 coaches, sort of high-profile hires, who I am at least a little skeptical of, and I want to just roll them through all in a batch here. I have Mel Tucker at 19. He is the new Colorado coach. He was the former defensive coordinator at Georgia, and he worked under Saban. I have Les Miles at 20, now at Kansas. We all know he's from LSU. I have a 21 Mike Loxley at Maryland. He is the former Alabama offensive coordinator, but he has also been a head coach. He has been an interim head coach at Maryland, and he has also been a head coach at New Mexico. I am kind of skeptical for lots of different reasons about all of them. Convince me maybe why I shouldn't be or why I should be.
1: Well, you made a really good point about Tucker in your piece, and you asked if Colorado is, is prepared to to make the commitment that they would need to do for Tucker's blueprint to come to fruition. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I, honestly, I don't. Um, if they do, I mean, I think his blueprint is going to work. I mean, it, it'll, it, not to say that Colorado is going to become a power in the Pac-12 again, but or the Pac-10. Or actually, they've never been anything in the pack 10 of 12, except exactly. for garbage, except for one year. Right. But and it's not like Colorado is going to become a top 25 team again. But I, I do think that Tucker is just one of those guys who's like, what, what's safe to say. He's like six years overdue for this five, six, seven years overdue. Maybe pushing it at least four or five years overdue for this opportunity. And there's something to be said for a guy who has worked under some of the great coaches in the country has seen how some of the great programs are run. Um, getting an opportunity and a chance to to kind of execute that vision, if Colorado supports it, I think Mel is going to do well. I don't think they're going to be great. I don't think they're going to be gangbusters. They're not going to, you know, be a top ten team, but I think he'll be successful. I don't know if you agree. I just think that uh. th- there's a nice combination there if Colorado's willing to put their chips on the table and support Tucker all the way.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm just concerned of what Colorado wants to be football-wise. This is really not necessarily an indictment of Tucker himself. You're right, this guy's got a great resume, and it's probably it's probably overdue that he gets a chance to be a head coach somewhere. You know, again, he's had a lot of successful coaches in his background. The fact that he's a first-year coach walking into a, a program that doesn't seem to have a clear definition of what it wants to be and he is going to have to now basically start almost create that from scratch I just wonder if that's a tall task for a first-year coach who also doesn't have any real ties to that part of the country I'm a little worried about that as well so again certainly not an indictment of Tucker this one more of a concern about what Colorado wants to be now you have less very high up your list of you know, this year will be successful. He was among the top, what was he, like, number three or four there for you? He was number
1: three. And look, I think these are not mutually exclusive ideas. He can be three on my list and still be 20 on yours. Yeah. Because year one for Les Miles at KU, the expectations are so low that as long as he wins, he doesn't lose every game, he doesn't go under NCAA sanctions, he doesn't, Say something incredibly stupid, or do something incredibly, incredibly stupid. Like this is going to be a successful year for less because he'll bring attention to the program. He'll be funny on Sundays and on Tuesdays with the media, and he'll have clips that go on to whatever social media you use. He'll bring attention to the program. He'll recruit um, at a fine level. They're not going to, you know, be incredible, but he'll bring some attention in terms of recruiting. It'd be hard to mess this up. But then again. I don't think that Les Miles is going to turn Kansas into a winning program because I'm not sure if anyone could do that um, at any sort of time. I mean, I think it's going to take three or four years for them just to get to 85 scholarships. Right. So I think 20 is a fair assessment of him because I'm not expecting them to be great under Les Miles or anybody.
0: Yeah. And, and at 60, I think he's 65 now for Les. I, I just I think that this is a job that was you needed somebody I don't know. I think you needed a young. Now, they just had a younger guy and David Beatty. But David Beatty was also a guy who had never been more than a receivers coach before. So I think that there was some limitations to what to expect of of him. I understand why they went with Les Miles. I think they just wanted to get back to respectability. They wanted to bring in a coach who could connect with the donors, bring some credibility and get the program back to respectability. I think Kansas is so far down in a hole. I'm not sure if Les is able to do that. At number 21 is Mike Loxley. And, and this is more of an indictment, quite frankly, of Loxley and his previous tenure. His tenure at New Mexico was an abject failure in every Historically way. Historically
1: embarrassing yeah, for him I, and for the program.
0: On the field, off the field, a lot of things went wrong. He, he hit an assistant coach. There were lawsuits. There was a lot of losing games. Now, he may be a new man. And a much better coach. But that is also, and as much as he has great ties in that area, he was hired as much as anything else to sort of unify a community and a program that has been torn apart in the last few years that hasn't had any stability in the recent years. And the idea was for him to not just make the Terps better at football, was to sort of heal some, do some healing in Maryland football. Healing is great, but there's still a lot of volatility around what Maryland wants to be and how Maryland wants to compete in the Big Ten. So there's some instability in the university level, in the athletic department. Now you bring in a guy who has had a, a monumental failure on his resume. I just think this is a bit of a boom or bust situation for Maryland.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And he has achieved that that first marker. I mean, he's totally brought the program together as kind of a more unified—they're not completely unified, but there's it's a more unified program, obviously, today than it was seven months ago, no doubt about it. So for in that sense, he's been successful. But l- like you wrote, I have a hard time overlooking his history as a head coach. So to me, how he fares at Maryland, he's clearly going to recruit. Um, I think he's got a vision on offense that he might not have had before. I think those are obviously two calling cards. This is the ultimate litmus test for the Nick Saban seal of approval and the process seal of approval. Because if Mike Loxley can go from having that tenure at New Mexico to rebuilding his reputation to a degree where he can get the Maryland job under Nick Saban, if he makes this work, then I mean I think that would be incredible. But like you said, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm a little bit skeptical because I'm not sure if that time at Alabama was enough for him to really get an idea of what he did wrong at New Mexico and what he's going to do right at Maryland. And I'm, I, I'm just not sure. Typically when you flame out the way he did at New Mexico, you don't get another head coaching job. I mean, not at this level and certainly not a step up the ladder power five. I mean, that never happens. So it's fair to be skeptical. I'd love for him to prove it wrong because um, I think he really cares about that community and he cares about that program being successful. So I'd love for him to do something. But you know, there obviously is a limited ceiling at, at Maryland and a long way to go. So we'll we'll see how it plays out. I'm, I'm
0: a little bit skeptical. Right. And the other issue Maryland has is just the neighborhood it lives in, which means that it has to play Penn State, Michigan State, Michigan, and Ohio State every single year. And rarely will Maryland be up to the task of winning even two of those games, probably not even one of those games. So. You also blend that that into the Mike Loxley stew. All right, then we'll go fast through the rest of the list because the rest, the, the next three, or really the next four, were guys I sort of lumped together and then and then sorted them out. They are first time head coaches. A group of five schools that. You know, we'll see what happens. Right. I mean, Thomas Hammock at Northern Illinois at number 22. He's got some NFL time in his background. That's a really solid program. Having him ahead of these other guys is almost a nod to the idea that like Northern Illinois is solid enough of a foundation that he's an alum, but even a first time head coach shouldn't screw it up too badly. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, Tyson Helton at Western Kentucky, after the failed Mike Sanford experiment, they went back to the Jeff Brom tree. Again, I I guess, maybe, sure, why not? Uh, But who knows? He's a first-time head coach, and Western Kentucky has shown some volatility Number 24, Walt Bell at UMass. UMass might be the toughest job in the country. If he can get to a bowl game, the expectations are so low, which is the only reason why I knocked him up a little bit. And I've heard he's a smart guy with a lot of energy, so maybe they can get to a bowl game and then they build a statue for Walt Bell. Scott Leffler at number 25 for Bowling Green. I almost had him last I don't really know what exactly Scott Leffler has done to earn a head coaching job. He has always been a well-regarded assistant, but his offenses have never been all that outstanding. But I, even I, even at Bowling Green, I found this to be a little bit of a oh really? That's all you could do?
1: <laughs> well, let me say one thing about Walt Bell. Um, he's young, and youth everywhere in this country is is obviously a little bit overvalued. I, I don't know why I said this country. I think in this profession rather youth is overvalued to a degree. Because, maybe even in the country, quite frankly. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But certainly in this profession. Uh, I looked, I did this, calling it research is ridiculous. I went to CFBStats.com. But his last three offenses before he got this job, nationally in yards per play, 110th, 104th, and 76th. Okay. So I don't think they're getting, you know, uh, early 2000s Rich Rodriguez at UMass. <laughs> got gotcha. um, Fair. So Very and fair. And I'll say this. You put the words Scott Leffler and Bowling Green together, I just want to close my eyes. <laughs> this pairing is the like unsalted potato salad of, of coaching hires. I don't know what – I mean, look, now he'll go 9-3 and three, four years in a row because I put the seal of disapproval on it. But I don't know what what that was about. But not like Scott Lefler ever been a head coach. And as you note, in all of his time as an offensive coordinator – none of those offenses have been especially coordinated very well in terms of their production. The last now, Okay. Can we talk about number 26? The last
0: because, two, the last two on the list. Yeah. We'll definitely talk about number 26. The last two on the list are Gary Anderson at Utah state, which was probably me being a little bit harsh. Uh, and number 27 is Jim McElwain at central Michigan also could be described as me being overly harsh. I, I don't know. I was very concerned about Gary Anderson stepping back into that job, the way it happened, where it seemed like a faction of boosters despite. Decided, no, no, no. We want Gary Anderson. But there were others in the university who actually wanted to have a coaching search and thought of their job as somewhat valuable, that they could get somebody else in there to replace Wells that may have a higher upside that may bring some new ideas to the table. Uh, I, these reruns worry me a lot. And it, it, he's definitely got a track record of success there. But I'm just worried about the reruns and the fact that he was in some way strong armed in there that this might not go well.
1: And tell me why you had McElwain last. This is what I've really been waiting for. Why is McElwain number twenty-seven out of twenty-seven?
0: Clearly, the guy is a is a pretty good coach, right? Because he's won at Florida. He's he has he has played for SEC championships. So there is something about him that makes him a pretty good coach. That flame out at Florida was very bad, and it was mostly based on how he was sort of relating to the administration there. So here is a coach who was having issues with support resources. The administration and how he is being sort of appreciated by the administration at an SEC school at Florida. Right. Now you're going to a Mac school. Now maybe he has had an epiphany and simply decided, you know what, I'm okay at sort of the brick and mortar. And I'm just going to go back to being a football coach, right? I'm not going to have to have as many... Other issues on my plate, I'm not going to have to glad hand and fundraise and be front-facing and a high-profile. I'll be much more comfortable in this sort of just coaching ball, right? I'm just going to coach ball here in the MAC, and maybe that will be a great fit, but I am really worried about how it ended at Florida and if that translates to – because the question when you hire a guy like Jim McElwain is, is he my Frank Solich? Or, or is he a guy who is just looking to sort of his next job, and is he going to be Tommy Tuberville at Texas Tech?
1: Yeah, it's more Tuberville, you would think, than Solich. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd have him 27th. Um, to say his name one more time, I probably would have Scott Lefler 27th. But I, don't think, I, I just don't think that highly of, of, that, of that move.
0: Uh, Of of the McIlwain. you're not, you're not thrilled with the the McIlwain movie. Yeah.
1: Okay. No, I'm not thrilled about it. It's, it's tired. It's boring. It's too easy a pick, you know, it's too, it's too much of a no brainer. Um, and like you said, he's going to have to readjust himself to the fact that their meeting room will be the size of his office at Florida. You know, and I think that's a step down that he'll have to handle. I I, I don't know about Gary Anderson quickly. Mm -hmm. I don't think he should have been in the top 10. I just think 26 is low. Um, uh, the positives are that Oregon state was ugly, obviously. Um, he made a terrible mistake um, in taking that job. But he's a really good football coach. And he obviously knows Logan really well. He told me when I went to see him at Corvallis that the reason he went to Oregon State is that he wanted to recapture that Logan feel, the feel of a Logan-like community, Logan, Utah, where Utah State is, and find that sort of program where you know, it was acceptable to be a little bit different and uh, kind of sulk in the shadows and build things from the bottom up. He wanted to recapture that feeling after Wisconsin. Um, he was misguided on that but I think he's a really good fit in Logan I think obviously he has support in the people who matter because he got the job um, the two things that the two reasons why I wouldn't have him in the top 10 are number one Matt Wells won 11 and two last year even though he won 11 and two in his own last season did Anderson so the expectations are high. he's also battling his own previous tenure where he's got to match that success so that's gonna be tough for him to do I just don't think I'd have number 26.
0: Okay, so I said a little low on Gary Anderson on this side of the fence, but you know what? A couple of years ago, I had Jeff Tedford second to last on this list when he got hired at Fresno State. So you know, you make some mistakes. Who was number one
1: and number two last year? Do you remember?
0: Right, number one last year was Chip Kelly at UCLA, and number two was Willie Taggart at Florida State. So that's not looking very good right now.
1: No, well, look, you still have time. I still have time to recover. You still have time for Chip Kelly. I just think about Taggart very briefly. I, I think about Taggart. Like I wonder if he's ever gonna recover from going five and seven. Like if, he, if his tenure will ever recover there like could you have to do to ever recover from
0: that th- there could be a rich rodriguez situation here where where like you just get off to a bad start and it never turns around for you because of i think the negativity sort of envelops the program and you are chasing your tail for 3 years and it never gets better like i that that i think that happened with rich i think it could be happening with willie and uh, uh, yeah i think that's a very fair a, a, possible assessment of what could go on at florida state i also think he might have the ability to recruit his way uh, recruit away his problems
1: totally if he could recruit a quarterback it'd
0: be a good start yeah that is that is a bit problematic so we have gone through all the new coaches this year and hopefully you will have fun you know assessing that list there's there hasn't been a whole lot of other news going on in college football unless you're interested in injury reports or availability reports um so what else have you been really doing to to fill your time? Because you weren't in Arizona, you weren't a, among the many college football writers. Because we can't send everybody to Arizona to cover those meetings. George Schroeder had it locked down for USA Today. So what else have you been doing to sort of like you know fill your off season time?
1: Well, I've been reading a lot, reading a lot of books. Um, obviously, I've been I, I've been going to see Avengers movies. Ooh. Um, you know, I saw Endgame. Okay. So that's pretty much what I've been doing. So, yeah, I've read so your books
0: you Your you're, you're, yeah. Okay, so, uh, so reading books is fun, but nobody wants to hear about us. Do you want wh- to hear wh- about books the books that I've read? Well, no. eh, let's talk about it. Give, give me one book. Give me just one book that you've read.
1: I read a book very recently, um, which I put. Well, I picked up last summer and then put down and finished. A Brief History of Seven Killings by a writer named Marlon James.
0: Oh, I tried I, to read that book, and I I put it down and tried to pick it back up, Should I pick it back up? Should I dive back back in it? I understand
1: that it's a dense book in terms of the language. The language is very dense and you've got to work through the dialect. Mm -hmm. Which which shifts from character to character,
0: which is brilliant as far as the writing is concerned. The fact that you can write in many different voices is pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, it's an incredible achievement by him. And he's got a new book out, uh, came out maybe two months ago. I'm going to forget the name right now, but it's supposed to be like an epic um, novel that actually some people have compared to like a, like a comic book movie actually to tie okay. it back into Endgame. So I do want to read that. Okay. Um, I'll give you my thoughts on, on end Yeah. I like the Marvel movies. Like I've decided in the last couple of years, um, that when I go to the movies, I, I just want to go and, and be entertained. I don't want to just go see a movie because, Oh, this movie got nominated for four Oscars. It's about a woman and, and, and her husband and they divorce and then they find each other. Like I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to pay to see that. So I'm going to pay to see entertaining movies. Um, Endgame was extremely entertaining. I thought it was a nice summation of things. It obviously isn't deep cinema. I had maybe like two issues with it. Number one, did you notice how many violins played in this movie? I <laughs> did.
0: That is that is such an interesting observation because no, know, of, of you all know how the many things times
1: they played the violin like this sad dirge of a song on the violin Mm. like at some point in the movie i turned to my wife and i said hey uh have you noticed all these violins and she's like yes i have noticed they're using a lot of violin in this movie i found it to be off-putting like i i don't know why they felt that after the after like kind of the overall feel of all the movies before this this had to have violins is that because they wanted to make it even more dramatic.
0: I think they were looking for a certain level of gravitas. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> they were thinking this movie's missing something. I think it needs violin. Mm-hmm. So they put the violin um, in. I think by the third time I noticed this is excessive. And then there were probably 15 or 16 more violent interludes. <laughs> um, the other thing was, I understand that this movie is not supposed to be taken as realistic and you're supposed to lose yourself in the moment nonetheless
0: oh, by the way don't spoil uh, don't don't spoil it I, I'm going to give oh, you, I know I know everybody okay. has seen it's already made How a billion you, dollars
1: it's been out for two weeks. I oh. can't give a spoiler.
0: okay okay, so let me say that let me let me just give a spoiler alert. if you have not seen this movie, you want to see this movie, please turn this off now because paul is uh is fixing to spoil it for you okay. proceed Paul
1: okay, so the, there this is a two part thing. The first part's not really a spoiler it is kind of but doesn't spoil the ending per se there's a part when they're fighting at the end where things get very CGI ish and they're just all fighting at the end. And then a, a Iron Man like device flies across the screen and then stops and lifts up the face of the helmet. And at the time it took me about five seconds to be like, okay, that was, I think that was Gwyneth Paltrow. Like (laughs) I'm pretty sure that was Gwyneth Paltrow. So I turned to Sam and I said, Hey, uh, was that Gwyneth Paltrow? And she started laughing because it was. that. I understand Gwyneth Paltrow has been in the previous movies. That really took me out of the movie to see Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> flying in the Iron Man machine and then her face popping up.
0: That's true. And I agree with in one of the Iron Man movies, I think she had like a brief interlude with the suit. So I, I agree with you. It didn't ruin it for me by any, by, any, by any stretch, but it did sort of, like, push me back a little bit. Like, oh, really? Her too, huh? It's not like there is not well-represented, like, female heroism in this movie. So, like, she was not a superhero, so she was sort of the one character that was outside the superhero realm. So I, I think she could have been left there. Like, I think, I think I would have been okay if she would have been still just... The wife of the superhero and not a superhero, because, again, there's there's more than enough female representation of heroes in this movie that I didn't necessarily feel like you needed to interject Gwyneth in there, too.
1: Yeah, like you might as well just had a normal person, like (laughs) just had.
0: Me or you maybe because it's it's also Gwyneth Paltrow, too, like it's just it's hard to sort of like of all the of all the actresses and actors in in the movie it's just sort of hard to embrace her in fighting mode
1: (laughs) i had a hard time with it and the last thing is this and this is obviously a very much a spoiler at the end of the movie um obviously captain america he does something let's not even get the time travel aspect of it because the time travel thing is so screwed up in this movie it's always in movies but this one particularly yeah you really have to i
0: mean you really have to suspend disbelief to to buy into the time travel in this movie now I know you'd say, "Well, well, how ridiculous is that? Time travel is already a suspension of of, of this of disbelief." <laughs> However, the time travel is extremely outlandish in this movie, which is an extremely outlandish uh, statement by me.
1: Yeah, it's very poorly explained. Just, <laughs> this is this is, and again, don't search for realism here. But still, very poorly explained. When he goes back in time to go back to each of the moments, right? That's what they do. They go back to each of the moments to return the stones to where they got them, like yeah. at the exact moment. Yes.
0: Don't ask me how he
1: does it, but yeah. he does it at the moment. Right. So like no butterfly effect happens. Mm-hmm. Um, when he comes back, he's an old man, even though he's, he doesn't look how he should look. He looks really, he looks great. <laughs> he, he, he's supposed to be 95. He looks better. better. He looks better than I do. He, he, he's very handsome as a 95 year old man. He gives the Captain America shield. To the Falcon. Okay. I have nothing against the Falcon except this. I understand a lot of people in the superhero world, are they're not like, like oh, I was born with the ability to shoot fire. They like, will have a machine, like the Iron Man has his, his machine. But the Falcon just has a jetpack. <laughs> that's all he has is a jetpack. Okay? Right. like it, That's all he has. If you take the jetpack away, he's just a guy. Yeah. He's just a person. He has no special... Abilities, any special training. He just has a jetpack. <laughs> so you have a jetpack and you have shown yourself proficient in jetpacking, and all of a sudden you're the inheritor of Captain America. You're the next Captain America because you fly in a jetpack. Again, nothing wrong with Falcon. I think the actor is actually really great. I've seen him in other movies. He's really talented. I just don't know if that makes sense to me. If I'm the GM or the head coach of the Avengers, I don't make that personnel decision because I don't believe that in his jetpacking skills he has proven enough to all of a sudden become the the leader, essentially, because the Iron Man is dead, the leader of of this elite all-pro team of of heroes.
0: Right, because even Captain America has super strength. That was part of the the serum that made him Captain America. He does not have super strength maybe to the level of Thor or, or Hulk, but he still has super strength. Whereas the Falcon doesn't, he is he is just a good. He's just in really good shape, right? He's just in. He's just he like does CrossFit, right?
1: Yeah, he's in great shape. Yeah, great
0: shape. But he, he may no be like ability. he may be like in like the in in as good a shape as like an NFL running back, right? Yeah, but that doesn't make you a superhero. <laughs> but now he's got no, a shield and, like a, would... and a jetpack.
1: Oh, oh, are you saying that he can use both?
0: I. I hope so.
1: Or would that be contrary to the Captain America mission? Okay, if he can use both, then, then I then I re, I would recalibrate. I just assume that when you become Captain America, you are you are you are ground driven.
0: <laughs> no, but I you, I don't see why you would give up the jetpack. Maybe you reconfigure it so you don't have quite the same wing situation. But I I think that you 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 have to keep the jetpack because again, if you just are a running back with a shield, that only goes so far. Right. If you're not if you don't have the superpower, the super strength, but but you still have the shield, you probably need to work some flying ability in there.
1: Wow. okay, so I I would have to rethink this. (laughs) By the way, if Captain America played football, would he be a running back? Would he be Tim Tebow
0: quarterback? Yeah, he would be because of his leadership skills. Right. I mean, you couldn't just I mean, I, I think he's probably built more like a like an outside linebacker. But but so is Tebow. Right. I mean, so you would have that type of model, I would think.
1: Who has a better arm, you think, Captain America or TiVo, with more accuracy?
0: Captain America is pretty good with that shield, by the way. Yeah. So,
1: okay. So Captain America.
0: Yeah. Do you have to answer that? I don't. Okay. I don't. I, I won't. So I won't we have answer. we have now gone. Usually, this podcast runs between thirty and forty minutes. We are now over an hour. We may ask. My, wow. I may ask my producer to do some editing. Um, probably not from the 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 Avengers segment. We're probably going to keep it right there. Um, because that was really good stuff.
1: We didn't even get to talk about the Mets.
0: No, I'm definitely, that's definitely not a subject I want to broach because <laughs> that, you don't want to talk about the Orioles, do you? No,
1: I sure don't. So I there
0: sure we don't. go. So, yeah, let's just leave baseball for next time. Paul Meyerberg from USA Today, thank you for this extended version, extended uh, appearance on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can go back to off-season mode now. Thank you. I'm 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 powering down. And now, three and out. First down. A decision might be made by the time you hear this, but former Penn State quarterback Tommy Stevens added a visit to Kentucky on his to-do list before making a decision on where he's going to play next. Stevens is also considering Mississippi State, Miami of Ohio, and Illinois for his grad transfer. I have heard Mississippi State is the front runner here, where he would rejoin Penn State offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead. Now, the, now the head coach for the Bulldogs. Stevens would be an interesting addition there. The Bulldogs seem to have a clear starter in place in Katon Thompson, a junior who has had some success as a backup the last two seasons. Maybe Stevens is just depth and uh, an insurance policy if Thompson doesn't work out. But I'm of the opinion that rarely do coaches bring in a grad transfer quarterback if they don't think the player could be an upgrade over what they already have on the roster. Second down. Kansas AD Jeff Long is pushing a change to the yearly scholarship limitations in college football that could help teams like the Jayhawks replenish a roster after falling way below the overall limit of 85 scholarships. Right now, teams are limited to signing 25 scholarship players per year, though there is some wiggle room with backcounting of players. Still, it's pretty rigid. Not long ago, teams could oversign as a way of guarding against attrition, but that got out of hand, especially in the SEC. What long asked Big 12 ADs to consider at last week's meetings is a rolling 50 limit over two years. So Kansas could sign 35 this season to at least get close to the 85 limit and start redshirting some players for developmental reasons. What Kansas has been doing is giving scholarships to walk ons to make up for their way below the 85 scholarship limit roster. That's great for the players, but it really does much to make for a competitive team. There is also some downside to this. Notably, it could make coaches more likely to run off players they signed but don't really want anymore. Hence, it could become another tool for the rich to get richer. But in the world of the transfer portal, it could also provide more opportunities for players looking to change schools. Right now, there seems to be more players entering the portal than there are FBS opportunities and scholarships available. Most of all, Long is selling it as a player safety issue because of a power five team basically playing with, let's say, 45 players who are truly ready to compete at that level is exposing those players to a very heavy workload Between games and practice. I don't expect this to pass, but Long's idea should be given some thought to programs that aren't traditional powers. It might not be a bad idea when looking at Kansas for some AD to say, there but for the grace of God, go I. Third down. I tweeted this a couple of days ago, but I'll mention it here too. More schools that are flush with money should do what Michigan does and take their football teams on trips overseas. The Wolverines were recently in South Africa after doing Italy and France in recent years. The trip was paid for by a donor. So much talk about the educational experience of college sports is either disingenuous or at the very least hollow. I understand that these trips are also recruiting tools for Jim Harbaugh, but they are exposing those players to places in history that most would never be able to experience on their own, which is kind of the best case scenario for college in general. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and at Podcast One. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.